Well, if you can't tell, Abby and David are out on a planned venture this morning. Um, so I really am wearing all those hats. That said, I really enjoy leading worship again this morning. And, you know, I think if we're doing things right, then the entire service should almost be like one big conversation with God, really. What I mean is the worship portion should be a chance for us to tell Jesus how much we love him. And the sermon portion should hopefully be a chance for us to hear truth from God's word. And I hope you know that when I say us, I mean us today, okay? This week while I was working on my sermon, whew, I was like, okay, this is hard stuff. I was preaching to myself. Um, you know, I was uh, learning things, um, being convicted, and being encouraged all at the same time to make changes in, in my own life. So that said, get ready to buckle in, because once again, we are about to dive into the powerful and convicting word of God. Now, if you missed a sermon last week, then I would definitely go back and watch that when you have time, because that's where I took the time to carefully lay down a, a foundation for what we're going to be talking about today. But for this morning, I'll go ahead and walk us through a brief recap, just so we can put everything into context. So let's start by brushing over 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6, which is also our passage for today. So you can feel free to open up your Bibles or read in your bulletin or even follow along on screen. We got we got the scripture in all those places. So starting, uh, starting with verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy and unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. So from this passage, you might remember that I discerned a working definition for love that we're going to continue to revisit today, which is that true love is a choice that is both inspired and empowered by Christ to put others before self. Now, as we worked through the text last week, we saw how that definition was true in three ways. First, we covered the fact that true love is patient, not irritable. And we talked about how both of these traits go together because irritableness really is the opposite of patience. Then we learned from the example of Jesus' life and ministry that patience is something you do when you're putting others before yourself. After that, we moved into application by doing some self-inventory in the areas uh, that each of us might be lacking in patience, working toward the goal of ultimately being less selfish. Then we launched into the second point, which was that true love is kind, not rude. And we talked about the fact that while the world has a confused definition of kindness, the example of Jesus helps us narrow down what kindness really is. And in summary, we learned that to be kind is to speak in a way that shows you ultimately value others, and to be rude is to speak and act in a way that shows you ultimately don't. And we concluded with the third point last week by learning from the example of Jesus and sending out the 12 and how he responded to Satan in the wilderness that true love is content, not envious. After that, we moved into application with the understanding that the best way to keep envy from burning in your own heart is to be content and to remember what you already have. So that was last week in a nutshell. This week, we will be talking about the three final qualities of love from our text that support the working definition of love at the top of your bulletin. So, picking up where we left off on the fourth point today, true love is humble, not haughty. 
1 Corinthians 13.4 says that love is not arrogant or boastful, which can essentially be summed up in the word haughty. The Bible often mentions haughtiness as a kind of arrogance that someone sort of wears on their sleeve. Basically, it's not just excessive pride, but it's the desperate need to express it. Interestingly, Scripture often pairs the word haughty with a look on the face or a look in the eyes. For example, Proverbs 21.4 says, The lamp that guides the wicked, haughty eyes and an arrogant heart, is sin. So that's why I'm using the word haughty to describe the combination of arrogance and boasting. But another interesting thing to, to note is that in the Bible, haughtiness is contrasted with humility. Proverbs 18.12 says that before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Now, in case anyone is confused for our purposes today, I'm using the word humble and haughty, or I'm sorry, humble and humility interchangeably. <laughs> because really they mean the same thing in this context. But the point is that those who are haughty put themselves before others, which is not love, and those who are humble put others before themselves, which is love. That said, our definition of love today is about what Christ exemplified. So we need to consider what Jesus has shown us in the area of humility. Honestly, I believe the cross, the case could be made that no other being in the universe has practiced humility to the extent that Jesus did. Paul wrote about the example of Christ in Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Here's what it says, starting with verse 3, Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. Adopt the same attitude of, as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as a thing to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself, assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Frankly, there's an entire sermon series on that passage. We could spend weeks on just about every single verse, but for now, we're just going to focus in on the fact that Jesus really did exemplify true humility. After all, the passage we just read says that although Jesus was God and is God, he didn't consider equality with God as something to be exploited while he was here on earth. So if anyone had every right to be prideful, it would have been Jesus. But instead, he took on a body of flesh and bone and lowered himself to wash the feet of his disciples and ultimately die on a cross. Sure, others have been crucified throughout history. And the things that happened to the early church during the reign of, like, Emperor Nero, pretty unspeakably violent. But the fact of the matter is that no one knows humility like Jesus because no one else is God. It's like the difference between dropping a quarter from, like, my shoulder height, which is not that high, um, like the, the, the height of the Empire State Building. The difference is not in that they're both going to hit the ground. They are. But the difference is in the height uh, that they fell to get to the ground when they fell. So what makes the example of Christ so humble is not simply the death he died, but the height from which he lowered himself to get there. But the real question is, how do we take the example of Christ and learn from it in our own lives? But well, we should probably start with the fact that the current Christian culture has been overtaken with something I like to call false humility. 
False humility comes from insecurity and unhealthy comparisons, and we practice it when we try to show off how humble we are to other Christians. Let me give you an example. As many, well, let me just start this this way. Um, how many of you know Phil Keggy? Raise your hand if you know who Phil Keggy is. Okay, almost nobody except for our guitar player. Okay, so Phil Keggy is like really well known in the world of music um, for, for his amazing playing. He'll record loops and he'll basically, it, it sounds like there's a whole orchestra playing, but it's just him. He's really something. So an example of false humility um, would be like if someone complimented me on my guitar playing and I responded with, oh, I'm really not that good. In fact, I really suck. I wish I could play like Phil Keggy. That's an example of false humility, because in that scenario, it's all about me showing off how humble I am, when really, it's coming from insecurity and probably an unhealthy comparison. But the, re- but the reality is that biblical humility has nothing to do with how we compare ourselves to other people, and everything to do with how we compare ourselves with God. So before we evaluate our own lives, it might help to think of it like this. Haughty people put themselves in God's place, Falsely humble people put others in God's place, but humble people put God in God's place. So with that understanding, where are you at today? How do you compare yourself to God? If you aren't sure, I can tell you that one way to answer that question pretty quickly is to take a look at your own prayer life. If you pray first and act later, then you probably consider God's actions to be more important than your own. But if you act first and pray later, sort of on the side or not at all, then you probably consider your own actions to be more important than God's. And with that, let me be vulnerable with you this morning. A couple of weeks ago, God convicted me on this. And what he showed me is that when I shorten or hurry through my time with God, what I'm really revealing is that I think my work and involvement is more important than God's work and God's involvement. And the thing is, that's haughty. That said, maybe for you, the question really isn't about how you compare yourself to God, but how you compare yourself with other people. And if that's the case, then let me ask you a tough question, and I want to encourage you to try, it, try and answer it as honestly as you can. What gives you your worth? The undeserved love of God or how you measure up to your friends and family? True humility is rooted in keeping Jesus as Lord and putting others before yourself, not through comparison or insecurity, but because of love. So if we truly have love, then we will decide to be humble because humility is a choice that is inspired and empowered by Christ to put others before self. That said, there's more to love than humility because true love is also forgiving, not resentful. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says that love keeps no record of wrongs, but we need to be careful Um, and how we treat this verse, not to take it beyond what it actually means. Because the fact that love keeps no record of wrongs doesn't mean it's completely unaware or willfully ignorant of wrongs. What I mean is refusing to keep a record is not the same thing as ignoring. After all, it's not like Jesus just chose to forget about our sin when he went to the cross, which leads us to a very important distinction. Because if you think that God had to choose to ignore your sin to somehow make it less offensive to forgive you, then you don't understand the forgiveness of Jesus. The whole reason he suffered and died was because he paid the consequence that we deserved for our sin. 
Every stroke of the hammer as the nails went into his hands and feet. Every lashing from the whip as it beat against his back. Every drop of blood that was shed and every agonizing breath that he took is a reminder that God didn't make light of our sin, but instead paid the full price for it with his own life. That's the reason your sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west, if you know Christ. That's the reason that God has washed you clean, because Jesus took the consequence for our sin upon himself. Colossians 2.14 says it this way. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. That's what's meant by the fact that love keeps no record of wrongs. That's what forgiveness means. That said, we need to take a moment to talk about the opposite of forgiveness, which is resentment. Resentment is all about keeping a record of wrongs, while also unfairly adding to that list over time. When we choose to be resentful with someone for something they did to us, we also almost always exaggerate and add to what they did in the first place. The reason we do that is because all humans are susceptible to something called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias happens when we observe reality through the lens of what we already believe to be true. When a person is harboring resentment, confirmation bias goes crazy. Allow me to explain how this deadly phenomenon works. Let's say you work for a large company and it's time for your annual review with your boss and, and you're looking forward to it, okay? You've worked pretty hard all year. Um, you, you might be thinking, maybe I'm going to get a raise. You want to hear some feedback, you know? But weeks go by with no meeting. At first, you try to give them the benefit of the doubt, but then you begin to feel forgotten. And instead of having a direct conversation with them about how you feel, you keep it to yourself. As you go back to work, in, day in and day out, you begin to feel more and more like your performance and what you bring to the company doesn't even matter to anyone else. And after a while, resentment sets in. After weeks go by, things begin to happen that really upset you in a way that the people around you just don't seem to understand. A coworker offers constructive criticism to your work and you yell at them and almost quit. A new, a new employee is hired and you wonder if your job's secure. Your boss pays attention to your friend's work and you feel jealous, overlooked, and even angry. But eventually, things come to a head and you decide you can't take it anymore, so you ask your boss to meet. He agrees and the two of you meet for coffee and with a list in your hand, you begin to unload in tears about what you've been through and how you've been made to feel. As your boss looks at you like a deer in headlights, you demand that things change and threaten your resignation. But after a sincere apology, your boss begins to explain to you that he had a glowing report for you written and he was planning to give you a raise, but the computer system that he used to remind himself to give the reports somehow skipped over your name and malfunctioned. After you see the sincerity in your boss's eyes as he explains what seems to be an honest mistake, you begin to realize that maybe you haven't been seeing things very clearly. And to your surprise, you're the one who winds up apologizing to him. Now, unfortunately, that example ended more positively than what happens most of the time in real life. But this is essentially how confirmation bias works when a person is harboring resentment. Some people construct entire false narratives for years or even their entire lives 
because of one issue they never dealt with at the source. So, as I said, resentment is the opposite of forgiveness because it keeps a record of wrongs. But also be aware that when the process of resentment sets in, it's only human nature to begin adding to that list with false offenses through confirmation bias. That said, it's one thing to know what forgiveness and resentment mean, and quite another to know how to be forgiving. So let me start by saying that if someone hurts you, the first thing you need to do is talk with that person about it. Remember, forgiveness isn't about ignoring wrongs or acting like they didn't happen. It's about refusing to keep a record. And the only thing, the only way to do that, to not keep a record, is to let the person know. So that's always rule number one. But honestly, there's more to it than that, isn't there? Because sometimes people don't say they're sorry when they should. Beyond that, some of you have had terrible things happen to you, and I won't act like I haven't been through some things as well, because I have. So what do you do when the hurt runs too deep? When the way that someone mistreated you altered the course of your entire life? When the things that someone did were just too wrong and too painful to ever move on from, what do you do then? Because it's easy to talk about forgiveness up to a certain point, but then it becomes very, very difficult. Some people in this room have probably endured the nameless evils of child abuse. Others have had spouses leave for no good reason. There might even be someone here who lost a loved one because someone else made the choice to drive intoxicated. Whatever it may be, there are situations in this life that leave us feeling powerless to forgive. So I want to take a moment to explain something that I've learned that has helped me to forgive many people in my life, and I hope that it might help you as well. Most of us know and remember the story about what Jesus told Peter when he asked the Lord about how many times he should forgive. But what you may not remember is the parable that Jesus told directly after that. Let's go ahead and read the story from Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 21, and then I'll share my thoughts with you about what I've learned from it. Again, that's Matthew chapter 18, starting with verse 21. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of God can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, and his children, and everything that he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of the servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. That servant went out and find one of, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, Pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him. Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what he owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. 
Then, after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. So here's what I've learned from that parable. Sometimes the only way to forgive someone is to remember how much God has forgiven you. We need to realize that whatever evil someone has done against us does not compare to the long list of evils that we have done against a perfect and holy God. I'm not saying that what you have done is worse than what you have gone through. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that while sin hurts us, it is the greatest offense to God and God alone because He is perfect and He is holy. And yet in the light of His glory, God has chosen to give every person a chance to be forgiven. Even the person who hurt you. Even the soldiers who nailed Him to the cross. So if God can forgive them, then you can too. Remembering how Jesus forgave you is the key that unlocks the door for you to forgive others. But the reality is that it isn't just about what we can do. This is about what we should do. Jesus' parable is clear that if we withhold forgiveness from someone else, when we've already been forgiven by God, then we do a terrible injustice to the cross we cling to. So if we really have love, then we're going to forgive. Because forgiveness is a choice that is both inspired and empowered by Christ to put others before self. Moving on, the final point today is that true love is truthful, not unrighteous. At the end of our text in verse 6, Paul wrote that love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Have you ever noticed that the world's definition of love is the exact opposite of that statement? The world says that love rejoices in unrighteousness and that it finds no joy in the truth. It's profoundly opposite of the Bible. For example, popular society calls homosexuality and sexual perversion love when the Bible clearly states that both are sin. Why? Because Satan, the great deceiver, has convinced many lost people that love is a feeling that ultimately puts self before others. And when that becomes your definition of love, when selfish decisions based on selfish feelings becomes love, then it's just a word to justify evil. And that's exactly what has happened. Now, when it comes to the example of Jesus, it would almost be easier to give you a statistic than to pull out something specific because Jesus was all about truth everywhere he went. In fact, most believers and unbelievers alike know what Jesus said in John 14, 6. You've seen it on signs, bumper stickers, shirts. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Bible also calls Jesus the word of truth in James 1.18. And scripture is littered with examples of Jesus telling his listeners things they didn't want to hear. The thing is, though, in the Bible, Jesus' truth-telling isn't held in contrast with his love, but instead beautifully mingled in what culminated at the cross. Because the cross is where Jesus provided the answer to all of the hard truths he spoke while he was here on earth. In Romans 5, 6 through 8, Paul puts it this way. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Reality is that Jesus came here to bear witness to the truth that we're all desperate sinners. But at the cross, he made a way because of love. He told us we were helpless, but then he helped. He told us we were utterly ungodly, but then he made a way for us to be the children of God. He told us our sin was great, but then he proved his love was greater. The way Jesus told the truth reminds me of something called congenital insensitivity to pain. Currently, there are only about 300 documented cases worldwide of this disease, which is also known as CIPA. And although it can vary in severity, people with CIPA basically can't feel pain. If you look it up on WebMD, there's a pretty interesting article about it. And the most intriguing part of, of that article under the, is under the heading, is congenital insensitivity to pain good? Is it good? Here's what the article says. While it may sound pleasant to go through life without physical pain, congenital insensitivity to pain is a harmful condition which often shortens the lifespan of people who have it. Pain acts as a warning system for your body, alerting you to illnesses and injuries. The instinct to avoid pain also keeps you from taking part in dangerous activities. If you can't feel any pain, you may not notice a severe injury or you may seriously hurt yourself by accident. Now, here's the connection. While only 300 people have been known to have congenital insensitivity to pain, everyone on this earth has congenital insensitivity to sin. It started with Adam and Eve. And if pain is the warning system of the body, then truth is the warning system of the soul. My point is Jesus didn't tell us the truth to condemn us. He told the truth to warn us. But how do we apply this? How do we love by telling the truth in a culture built on lies? Well, let's consider two ways. Number one, we need to tell the truth about sin. If someone invites you to go take part in something that the Bible clearly identifies as sin, then you won't do them any favors by going. The most loving thing you can do is to be honest and forthright about what you believe is wrong and why you believe it, so the world might see your light and notice something different. Bending the black and white of the Bible in order to win people for Christ is contradictory, harmful, and ultimately ineffective. If we don't distinguish ourselves from the world, then we're keeping them blind to the need for repentance. Number two, we need to tell the world the truth about hell. Personally, I think it's very hard to talk about, but if we don't, then what are we really telling people? That if they don't believe in Jesus, they'll have a moderately decent experience outside of heaven after they die? The reality is that if we really love the lost, then we'll tell them the truth. Because telling the truth is a choice that is both inspired and empowered by Christ to put others before self. So, there you have it. A heavy sermon, a short sermon. Going back to last week, up to what we learned today, true love is patient, not irritable, kind, not rude, content, not envious, humble, not haughty, forgiving, not resentful, and truthful, not unrighteous. Why? Because true love is a choice that is both inspired and empowered by Christ to put others before self. Let's pray. 
Lord, I just, uh, I just ask that you would be with us right now. I know that that was, um, <laughs> that that packed a punch, certainly, that your, your word, um, your word is true, and your word warns us, as truth warns us, that we are not okay without you. We're not okay without you. So, Lord, I pray that if there was anyone in this room right now who doesn't know you, that they wouldn't hear me be, be, being mean, that they wouldn't hear me um, talking down to them, but that they would hear me as, as a medic that is telling them the disease they have and, and telling them that the cure is available, because it is. And the cure is, is your cross, Lord, where you died for, for us, where you bore the penalty of our sin. Thank you, Lord, for not only telling us the truth, but doing something about it. Only you could. Lord, for, for the rest of us in this room that, that do know you, help us to apply these principles about love. Lord, help us to put others before ourselves in these ways. Um, and help us to think about one thing that, that we can take home uh, from your word this week. And in all things we ask in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.